Bigger, Better, Beyond. We're wrapping up a sermon season on prayer. It is the Contrarian's Guide to Prayer. It's a sermon season on prayer that has nothing to do with asking. The whole idea behind this sermon season is we have to be deeper than our asking in prayer. In other words, when we enter into the relationship of prayer, we have to know who we're praying to before we know what we're asking. Usually we do that opposite. We go in saying, here's everything I need. By the way, are you able to do this? Am I supposed to do this? Is this how this works? Do I need to be doing this a different way? I want to give you on the front end the theology, if you will, of who I'm talking to that aligns my asking according to God's will, not mine, so I can enter into prayer, experience intimacy and transformation. We've wrapped it up in three pillars. Number one, God is bigger than anything that I face. God is better than I can imagine. And my favorite one today, God loves me beyond my worst sins. Today, if it, look, if you are... If you are in here and you are perfect and you've never sinned a day in your life, the Baltimore Ravens always need more fans. You're on the wrong team. Go, go cheer. But if you're in here today and you're a sinner saved by grace and outside of that grace, you'd just be a mess in and of yourself, left alone to yourself, you are in good company. I love what Paul says. I, uh, I am a sinner saved by grace and chief among sinners. We're, we're in good company. You're here with me. We can be chief among sinners together. And now we have to understand, what does prayer look like when sinful me enters into the holiness of God to experience communion with him? So I had some distant family um, who were very, very proud, loud Italian Catholics. Um, think of the stereotype in your mind, and it is exactly them. Black on black with their hair slicked back and a gold chain, baby. Like, that was, that was Christmas and Thanksgiving attire, right? Um, first generation Sicilian came over here and he had his family and, and built up this family. And, and we were, they, they were just loud, proud Italian Catholics, exactly what you would imagine. And so I'm at a Christmas there, right? And um, we're there, and, and as we're at Christmas, they have this pool table. And I mean, every, if you know an Italian family like this, you know at Christmas, at Thanksgiving, at Easter, it's always meatballs and pasta. Like, it is, it is no sort of like turkey and mashed potato. No, no, no. It is always Italian food. So the pool table's there. They got this huge piece of plywood on top of the pool table, and there is just a spread of the most beautiful Italian food you'll ever see. And the patriarch of the family is there. Papa's what they called him. And Papa was there. And, and they, as, as he was coming up, they were getting ready to eat. Like, Papa, I'm hungry. I'm hungry. Pop, say the blessing. And so Pop had gotten into the boxed wine a little early. All right? He had started, you know, a little early on the boxed wine. So Pop walks up. And he, he stands up. And the whole, whole family's circled up. Right? And, and I'm just standing there. right? And, and Pop says, no, I've... I've I've had a little too much wine. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not in a place to give the blessing. And he says, Steve-o, why don't you do it? Steve was kind of next in line in the family. Steve looks at Pop and he says, Pop, he said, I'm going through a divorce. I can't give the blessing. Well, you look at my Pop, I can't give the, you give the blessing. You've just been drinking wine. I'm going through a divorce. And Pop says, I, I'm not, I'm not. And they start looking around the circle, right? 
And this whole family dynamic of deflection of saying the blessing begins to break out because of one person's sin or one person's situation or someone getting a little too frisky with the boxed wine and, and all of the sudden, like I'm sitting there as a kid, I still remember today, it's 25 years ago, I'm sitting there and I'm thinking to myself, is there a place where I have done something bad or I'm walking through a bad situation or I've, I've done something that would exclude me from being able to pray like is there is there ever a time or something in my life where I'm not adequate enough to pray where I'm not good enough to pray where I'm too sinful to pray or I've done too many bad things to pray and I shouldn't even be welcomed into the church house let alone get on my knees and pray to a holy God is there ever a time where I would be in that situation in my life. Let me read to you what scripture says about this exact situation. And, and I'll, I'll tell you, we're going to come back to this, right? This is Romans chapter 8. I will apply it to the context of prayer. It is given in the context of prayer. I'll apply it at the end, but I just want you to hear this. Within the context of prayer, can sinful me enter into a prayer relationship with a holy God based on what I've done, what I've been through, who I am, and you don't, the secret things that we all don't know about you. Romans 8, 35 through 39. Can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? That's the question, right? Is there anything that can separate us from the love of Christ? Does it mean he no longer loves us? Have you asked yourself that question? Going through a divorce, does it mean he no longer loves me? I have been looking at stuff on the internet that I know I should not be looking at. Does it mean he no longer loves me? I am in a horrific situation right now of my own doing. Does it mean he no longer loves me? I've got secrets and the messages on my social media apps right now that could cost me my relationship. Does it mean he no longer loves me? That's what Paul's diving into, right? Can anything separate you from his love? Does it mean he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity or persecuted or hungry or destitute or in danger or threatened with death? As the scriptures say, for your sake we are killed every day. We are being slaughtered like sheep. No, despite all these things, overwhelming Victory is ours through Christ who loved us. Verse 38, this is where it gets good. And I am convinced that nothing, 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 nothing can separate us from God's love. Neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither our fears for today, nor our worries about tomorrow, not even the power of hell can separate us from God's love. You better shout, Eleven! No power in the sky above or in the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
Let that sink down into your soul for a moment. Let that rest within the most painful spaces of your life for a moment, that nothing can ever separate you from Christ's love. Now, if prayer is the place where we go, I'm getting ahead of myself, to experience the love of Christ, then does that mean there's any sort of sinfulness in your life that would disqualify you from entering into the space of prayer? I'm not saying, is there anything in your life that would keep you from getting what you're asking of God? I'm saying, is there anything where God would say you are not welcomed in here? What did we just read? There is nothing that can separate us from the love of of Christ. My son Canaan, he is my ride or die. I've got pastor friends who asked me, I've, I've got a lot of kids, and they didn't have as many as I did. He's got two kids, I've got four. And he said, how on earth do you do it and still have time for your kids and family? And I said, one, one rule that I have is I never go anywhere alone. I'm never alone. I came to church this morning. Canaan hopped in the truck. We rode to church together. I'll leave here. We'll go home. I'll drop him off. I'll pick another one up. I'll go run errands. Last night, I went to pick up food for the family. I threw two of them in the car with me. Like, I do not go anywhere or do anything alone. I had to go to Lowe's. I just, they're tagging along. I don't care if they want to or not. I need time with you. I need to sit with you. I need a 10-minute drive, 15-minute errand, and 10 minutes back so that we can talk, we can laugh, we can listen to music, you can eat all my gum, you can steal my Snickers bar I got in the console, like whatever you want to do, we're going to get time together, right? And Canaan has been the one who tags along with me probably the most, right? So Canaan and I were running errands and we head to Walmart. We got to get a few things. And when we're walking down the aisle, he, he stops and he says, hey, dad, stop. And he's looking at the baking aisle. And he says, hey, dad, what do you say we get a cake mix and we make a cake for the whole family? I said, I never like keto anyway. Let's do it. Let's do it. So we get the cake mix and we get everything and we head back home. And I, I got all these groceries and we drop them off. And I'm like, I told him, I said, hey, I've got to go do like two things really, really quick. Don't touch anything. He said, Dad, I'll just get the kitchen ready to make the cake. I said, that's fine. Do it. So I leave. And how many of you know these egg cartons, right? Like, you know they got that flex on them, right? Like, they're, they're this paper carton. And, and when you grab a hold of it, it's got this bend to it. Well, Canaan is he reading the, the back of the box. And he's like, I need water, I need oil, and I need eggs. So he opens up the refrigerator, and he stands on a chair, and he goes to the very top, and he's got an egg carton. And I'm, I'm talking like the, the big one, right? It's not like a little two-seater with 12 eggs or anything. It's got like five rows on it, and it's all the way back. And it's this, it's, so he gets a hold of it. And as he's sliding it off, and he's, he's squeezing a hold of it, once that back end came off of the shelf, it bent real hard, right? And it popped open and eggs just started rolling out of this thing. One after another, rolling down, smashing, breaking. They're breaking on the fridge. They're inside of the fridge. They're falling to the floor. He's, try he's like standing on a chair, trying to catch eggs that are falling. They're breaking all over him. His hands are covered in it. He's got one on his chest. They're falling out. He's, he's just made an absolute mess. Looks like he got in a fight with a chicken, right? He's just, it's a total mess. All these eggs everywhere, and then like the perfect moment, and I'm telling you, I thank the Holy Spirit. I had just read about a similar situation and a, and a parenting tip and everything else, so the Holy Spirit prompted me, and I, I want to be very, very clear. I, I am not the perfect dad. I have missed it on moments like this that were far less significant, right? Um, but this moment, I got right, and I learned a great lesson. I walk around the corner, and here's my son. All he wants to do is bake a cake with his dad make a cake for the family, have a lot of fun. 
I'm talking he made a mess. Like eggs everywhere, busted inside the fridge, running down the front of the fridge, all over the floor. He's covered in egg. And when I see him, he's holding it. And you know how when they're like starting to cry? Like they're fighting it back, but it's, it's starting. You know, like his face is starting to quiver a little bit. His eyes, his face is red. He's got these little tears welling up in his eyes. And he looks at me and he starts saying, Dad, I'm sorry. Dad, it was just a mistake. Dad, I didn't, I didn't mean to do it. Dad, um, Dad, he was just, he was broken. Because in his mind, he's thinking he's going to get in trouble. He made a huge mess. He's going to go to his room. He's going to be grounded. We're not going to make a cake. The fun is over. And I saw my little boy like that. And I walked up to him, and I, I leaned down on his level, and he is just, he is on the verge of total breakdown. And I said, hey, pal. I said, hey. He said, yeah, yeah. I said, hey, if we're going to make a cake, we've got to break a few eggs, right? <laughs> and, he, and he looked at me. And you could, there was just a turn in the moment. You could tell it went from, and he looked at me, and he smiled, and I said, what the heck are you doing with egg all over you, boy? And he starts to laugh a little, and I start to laugh a little, and I said, let's make a cake, and then we'll clean the eggs up. And I'm telling you, the, the trust that was built in that moment, in that, in that interaction that could have gone the absolute opposite way, that has gone for me the absolute opposite way, but in that moment, I saw my son and here's what I realized. If I, if I don't love my son beyond his mistakes, then our relationship will be defined by them. If I don't love him beyond spilling eggs, then our relationship is going to be defined by that time we went to the store, we picked out a cake mix, and instead of being able to go home and make it and share it and show the whole family, he spilled a few eggs, I blew up, sent him to his room, grounded him, we didn't make the cake, and the whole evening was over and all the fun was gone, and his relationship with me, if I don't love him beyond his mistakes, will be defined by his mistakes. We have to understand this in prayer. When we read Romans 8, when we read Paul talking about there's nothing that can separate us from the love of Christ Jesus our Lord, we have to read that as this. You can break as many eggs as you may break, but if you come to your heavenly Father in the space of prayer, you are going to be welcomed into that place because his love for us goes beyond our worst sins. Are you with me now? We have to understand this because I think there's so many people who cut their prayer life short because of their sinfulness. They, they eliminate themselves. They disqualify themselves. They stop praying. They stop engaging with God. They stop coming to church. They stop worshiping. They stop living according to the Spirit because they think for some reason that God's love for them only goes up to the, the place of their sinfulness and then it stops. Let me tell you something. If my effectiveness in prayer is based on my good behavior, we're all in big trouble because I'm praying for you. So if I'm, if I'm messed up and he's not hearing me, he's not hearing me for you, we're all, in, we're all a sinking ship, but he loves us beyond our worst sins. Here's what I want to give you, maybe a progression, if you will, in prayer. What does it look like when sinners enter into prayer? What happens? What is supposed to, what, what do we experience? And then how does that translate to us. It's just a progression of thoughts. Here we go. Sinners 
entering into prayer. Number one is this. Sin should not stop prayer. It should start prayer. The sin in your life should not stop you from prayer. It shouldn't put the brakes on your prayer life. It should be the ignition that fires up the engine that moves you into a place of prayer. Hear me. This was the revelation that transformed the Apostle Paul's life. When Paul came to the revelation that God would use me in spite of me, that God loves me in spite of my sinfulness, not because of my good behavior, but because of his grace and his love, this is what transformed the Apostle Paul's life. Here it is, 1 Timothy 1.15. This is a trustworthy saying, and everyone should accept it. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. I love what he says here. And I am the worst of them all. Listen to Romans 5, 8 through 10. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still what? Sinners. And since we have been made right in God's sight by the blood of Christ, he will certainly save us from God's condemnation. Verse 10. For since our friendship with God was restored by the death of his son, while we were still his enemies... We will certainly be saved through the life of his son. Listen to Paul again, Ephesians 3, verse 8. Though I am the least deserving of all of God's people, he graciously gave me the privilege of telling the Gentiles about the endless treasures available to them in Christ. This is interesting. Paul as you read throughout his letters, whether it's mentoring a young pastor in Timothy, whether it is addressing the divisions between Jew and Gentile to the Roman church, or whether it is to the church in Ephesus that he found, whatever the case may be, Paul, in his writings, never loses sight of his own depravity. He never loses sight of his own sinfulness, of his inadequacy before God, but it doesn't Stop him from going to God. It creates a relationship of gratitude between he and God. So that he is the one who also declares to the Thessalonians, we should never stop praying. We should pray unceasingly. Now, isn't it interesting that the very person who acknowledges I am chief of sinners is also the one preaching the message and never stop praying? I am chief of sinners and never stop praying. Why? Because the only place that we can go to when we are end of the rope in sin is into prayer. There's nowhere else for us to retreat to. The world will not create a retreat for us. The relationships that we've damaged won't create a retreat for us. Where do we go when we're at the end of our road? That is the sacred space of prayer. Prayer does not stop sin. Prayer starts prayer. I'm sorry. Sin does not stop prayer. Sin starts prayer. Sin becomes the place that I retreat to and that I run to when I feel like I have nowhere else to go. The Psalms are our guidebook for prayer. Eugene Peterson says you want to learn to pray, read and pray the Psalms over and over from Psalm 42, 46, 56, 80s and 90s, 127 through 134, is refuge, refuge, refuge. The Lord taught the children of Israel through the Psalms in prayer. 
God is our refuge and strength. What is he saying? When you're at the end of the rope, the only place you can go is to his presence. When you are at the end, the only place you can run to is his presence. It is your only lifeline. Don't disqualify yourself because of sin and eliminate your only lifeline. It's the only place you can go. I have, uh, when I was growing up, um, one of my friends had an uncle who wins the uncle award. This is like the coolest uncle thing to do, right? Um, so we were driving 175th and Lackman Road. It was an icy, icy day, and my friend's car slid off of the road, and when it slid off the road, we got stuck in the ditch, and we, we get out, and we're trying to find somebody to help us. I mean, we are stuck, and this big truck comes rolling through. He's got chains on his tires, and my buddy flags him down, and he pulls over, and he rolls down the window, and we're like, hey, will you pull us out real quick? Will you, will you pull us out? And he's like, man, I don't have any chains on me. I, I got a place to be. I'm sorry, fellas. Sorry for your bad luck. And my buddy says, what if I give you 100 bucks? Like, the heck, you get 100 bucks? Like, we're 16-year-old kids, right? Just remember, this is 525 an hour. Like, where'd you get 100 bucks at, right? And he's like, no, I, what if I give you 100 bucks? And the guy said, well, for sure, yeah. Chains are right down the road. So he goes, he gets the chains, he comes back, chains it up, pulls it out. And I'm like, hey, t t and he, he goes to his glove box, opens up his glove box, pulls out a crisp, beautiful-looking $100 bill, and he gives the guy a $100 bill. Uh, you've been selling drugs this whole time. I didn't know about it, right? Like, where did you get that? And he said, no. He said, here's what my uncle told me when I started driving. He said, when I started driving, my uncle came to me, and my uncle handed me a $100 bill. And he said, put this in your glove box. And he said, sometime you're going to run into trouble, and when you face a situation you don't know how to get yourself out of, pull that $100 bill out of there and use it. And when you use it, come to my office, and I'll give you another one. Hey, that's a cool uncle trick, right? Some of you college students are like, anyone want to be my uncle in here? <laughs> I'm looking for an uncle, <laughs> right? But that's prayer for us. Prayer is the place we go to when we have nowhere else to go. Prayer is the refuge that we retreat to when our sinfulness has created a world that we're existing in that we have nowhere else to go, don't know what to do, don't know where to turn to. We always turn to prayer. And when we turn to prayer, there is this renewing relationship in prayer. And here is what happens when we're sinful and we turn to prayer. Prayer is the place we confess our sinfulness, not hide it. So we're sinful, we still run to prayer. When we get there, what do we do? We confess. Confession. You are looking at me like, oh, isn't this elementary? Have you been telling God about everything you've been doing? Isn't it funny? Like, we, we somehow think that we can hide things from God. Like, somehow think, well, as long as I don't tell him about it in confession, he'll never check my messages or email. Like, we act like we have this thing with God where he only knows what I tell him about. or he's only, Like, my kids the other day, this, I, I, I'm still shocked by this. I got one little one still in diapers, and I, I walk into my bedroom, which is, you know, like where my stuff is at, my safe place, my sanctuary, open up the door, and he's standing there, and he goes, Dad, don't look at me, Dad. And I'm like, what? I told him, I said, if I see something I ain't seen before, I'll throw a dollar at it. Like, what are you hiding from? I've been changing your diaper, and you're still in them. Like, you, you, he's like, Dad, get out. Dad, get out. I'm like, what in the world? You act like I haven't seen you before. I wonder how God is with us in prayer, right? We go to God, and we're like, hey, can you help me with this? Can you help me with this? And um, I 
I don't know if I should mention it. No, 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 no. That is the place we go to God with confession. So we realize we're sinful. We know prayer is the place that we should run to when we're sinful. And what do we do there? We tell him everything. This is the, the transformation of David. David was king. David looked over his rooftop. David saw Bathsheba bathing. <clears throat> he liked what he saw. He sent some people down there, and his workers brought Bathsheba back to his, his castle. When she got there, he forced her to sleep with him, sleeps with her, gets her pregnant, sends her out. She sends message back, I'm your new baby mama. David says, oh, shoot, right? He then calls her husband back from war, kills her husband, sends him off to get killed. He dies. David's a murderer, brings her back in, tries to raise the baby and make it look like nothing happened. You have David, who is an adulterer. He's a murderer. He's a liar. He is conniving. He is, he is covering up his own sins. He's trying to do everything but turn to God. And then what happens? Nathan comes to David and he confronts David. And he says, you are that man. You are that sinful man who is lying and manipulating and murdering and doing all of these horrific things. David turns to Psalm 51 and he pens. He didn't turn to it. He wrote it. This is David's prayer of confession. When David finds himself confronted with the worst sins within him, it, let me just tell you this. If you are in here today and you find yourself sinking in a sea of sin and you want to go to God and you want to confess and you want to lay that before the Lord, but you just you don't even have words for it at this point. You are just broken beyond communication. I would go to and I have gone to Psalm 51 and said, Lord, here is my heart. Listen to David's confession. Have mercy on me, O God, because of your unfailing love. Because of your great compassion, blot out the stain of my sins. Wash me clean from my guilt. Purify me from my sin, for I recognize my rebellion. It haunts me day and night. Against you and you alone have I sinned. I have done what is evil in your sight. You will be proved right in what you say, and your judgment against me is just. For I was born a sinner, yes, from the moment my mother conceived me. But you desire honesty from the womb, teaching me wisdom even there. Purify me from my sins, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Oh, give me back my joy again. You have broken me. Now let me rejoice. Don't keep looking at my sins. Remove the stain of my guilt. Create in me a clean heart, oh God. Renew your loyal spirit within me. Do not banish me from your presence. And don't take your Holy Spirit from me. What a beautiful confession. So David falls before the Lord and he makes this confession before the Lord. Now I want to bring you to the end of David's life. One of the most interesting endings that I think there is in scripture. So David's life is coming to an end. 1 Kings 1, 1 through 4. King David was now very old and no matter how many blankets covered him, he could not keep warm. So his advisors told him, let us find a young virgin to wait on you and look after you. My Lord, look after you, my Lord. She will lie in your arms and keep you warm. 
So they searched throughout the land of Israel for a beautiful girl, and they found Abishag from Shunem and brought her to the king. The girl was very beautiful. She looked after the king and took care of him. Isn't this interesting? Scripture is so intentional to include this clarity. But the king had no sexual relations with her. This is David. This is the guy who couldn't control his lust. This is the guy who looked off a rooftop, saw it, wanted it, and forced it to happen, and became a liar, an adulterer, and a murderer because of it, and then tried to cover the whole thing up so nobody found out about it until Nathan confronted him. That's who we're dealing with, yet what does the end of his life look like? The same temptation is in his bed, and what does scripture make so clear? Though she cared for him, he had no sexual relations with her. Now watch how he's remembered. I think this is so interesting. 1 Kings 3, 5 through 6. That night the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream, and God said, what do you want? Ask, and I will give it to you. Solomon replied, listen to what he says about his father and then acknowledges with God. You showed great and faithful love to your servant, my father David, because he was honest and true and faithful to you. And you have continued to show this great faithful love to him today by giving him a son who sits on his throne. This is really interesting language from Solomon because what Solomon is saying is, God, you have offered to give me what I want. I want to be remembered like my dad who is honest and who is faithful and who is true to you. And I know that you saw those same things in him because you have placed me on the throne in his honor. You hear that, right? So he's saying, you saw the same because I'm on the throne in his honor and I want to be seen this way. How do you go from uncontrollable lust to forcing a sexual relationship to covering it up and killing the husband to try and make it all go away to being remembered as honest and faithful and true? You work it out in prayer. What is the hinge that changes the entire direction of David's story? Nathan confronting him in Psalm 51 confession. What transformed everything for David when he enters in in Psalm 51 and he says, these bones that you have broken, would you restore them? Would you give me back your, my joy again? Create in me a clean heart, O oh God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Please don't look at my sinfulness anymore, but welcome me in, in the joy into your presence, and please don't take your Holy Spirit away from me. This is called Confession. Confession is the only place that can fix the mess that you've made. Confession is the only place that you can go to in prayer. Now, if we say sinners don't belong in prayer, then you have no refuge for the mess that you're in right now. You have no help for the mess that you're in right now. You have no place to turn to for the mess that you're in right now. Yet every time I meet somebody who's in a disastrous situation, I ask them about two things. Tell me about your devotional life. Tell me about your prayer life. You know what they are? Non-existent. 
How is the enemy attacking us when we're in sin? How is the enemy attacking us when our lives are falling apart? He is convincing us because of our sinfulness. We don't belong in God's presence. And I'm telling you, it's the exact opposite. If you are in a disaster today, the first place you need to run to from here is to prayer on your knees. And the first thing you need to do is confess. Fall to your knees and confess and practice and live in a perpetual state of unceasing confession. What will you experience then? This is my favorite part. Remember, I told you we'd come back to Romans chapter 8, right? So we get this. Sin does not stop prayer. Sin starts prayer. So we run to prayer in our sinfulness. And what do we start? What do we do right in the midst of that sinfulness falling to our knees in prayer? Confession. We start confessing to God, I am the worst of sinners, but you love me beyond my worst sins to welcome me into your presence. What will we experience? Real quick, Romans chapter 8 is Paul building a complete theology from no condemnation to salvation to being filled with the Holy Spirit to crying out, Abba, Father. And because we can now cry out, Abba, Father, we are encountered with a transformational love that we cannot be separated from. Remember that Romans chapter 8, right? So again, here, I'll, I'll walk you through it. Romans 8 verse 1 so now, Paul starts this whole theology of transformation right here. So now, there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. Paul starts out and he says, if you belong to Christ, the world may condemn you, but you enter into God's presence and there is no condemnation for you. He continues. Romans 8, 15 through 16. So you have not received a spirit that makes you fearful slaves. Yet how often does sin and the lies of the enemy turn us into fearful slaves in prayer? You have not received a spirit that makes you fearful slaves. Instead, you received God's spirit when he adopted you as his own children. Now we call to him, Abba, Father. This is, he's engaging prayer now. Verse 16, for his spirit joins with our spirit to affirm that we are God's children. Isn't that beautiful? So Paul is saying, number one, there's no condemnation. He will continue to say, you have been saved by grace, not of the law, filled with the Holy Spirit that transforms you. And now that you are filled with the Holy Spirit, you can enter into prayer and you can call out, Abba, Father. You can call out with your soul, Abba, Father, and what will you experience when you have been saved, you have been transformed, you've been filled with the Holy Spirit, and you enter into prayer, and you call out, Abba, Father, what will you experience? Let's go back to the very, very beginning. Romans 8, 35 through 39, can anything else separate us from Christ's love? Does it mean he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity or are persecuted or hungry or destitute or in danger or threatened with death? You're catching it now, right? Romans 8, 35 through 39 is in the context of us calling out Abba, Father, in prayer. As the scriptures say, for your sake we are killed every day. We are being slaughtered like sheep. No, despite all these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ 
who loved us. And I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love, neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither our fears for today nor our worries about tomorrow, not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. Verse 39, no power in the sky above or in the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. Okay, so what do we have? We have no condemnation for those who are in Christ. We have been saved by grace, not of the law, filled with the Holy Spirit. Now we can enter into prayer and we can call out in prayer, Abba, Father. And by calling out Abba, Father, what do we experience? An inseparable love. What do sinners experience in prayer? An inseparable love. An inseparable love. A love that will never leave you. A love that will never forsake you. A love that will never abandon you. When our heart cries out, Abba, Father, there is a love that we experience in prayer that transforms us. It changes us. Sin, or prayer is the place where sinners experience an unseparable love. It is your place to experience maybe the only place you will find love. For sure, the only place you will experience a love that transforms you, a love that changes you, a love that loves you beyond your worst sins. That's what we experience in prayer as sinners. I'll share one more story with you because today is a very special day. Three weeks ago, the Chiefs played the Miami Dolphins in a wild card playoff game that was known as the fourth coldest game in NFL history. It was negative 21 degrees. By the way, I'm just, I'm thinking here, you know, I asked Johnny Pay, who are you rooting for today at two? He said, the other team. <laughs> hey, listen, the narrative has really changed in this room. I remember the start of play. I think you guys ran out of teams to root for, honestly. I don't know, I don't know how that, but I mean, the Chiefs are still there. We're still rolling. You guys can join Pastor Luke and, you know, praise God together as the Chiefs roll today. But a couple weeks ago, they played the Miami Dolphins' coldest game, uh, one of the coldest games in NFL history. And I was talking to someone here at church, and, and they said to me, man, I bet nobody's going to be there. And I said, you're nuts. I said, that place will be packed. It will be packed Every seat will be taken. And I said, there will even be some big drunk goofball with 87 painted on his chest, shirtless in negative 21 degree weather. That really happened. Isn't that funny? I, I mean, you just, you just know, right? It's going to happen. So we're sitting here going back and forth about it, and we're talking about it. And I'm telling him, I'm like, look, listen, Arrowhead is different. Arrowhead is a different experience. And now, for those of you that has never been to one of the greatest stadiums in NFL history, um, Arrowhead is, it is in a really a bad part of town. It's not in a good part of town at all. It is, the parking is terrible. Like, the parking is so far away. You walk for 20 minutes to get there. Exiting is an hour plus every time. You go to a Chiefs game, the game's over. You know you're going to spend at least an hour trying to get out of that place. All the hallways around the stadium are really tight. They're really small. Bathrooms are old. They sting. It's just, it's just the, but then you get there. And when you get to your seat, there is an experience in 
the game that is just, you're going to watch them win today at two, and it's not even going to compare to what you experience inside a stadium. And I told my friend this, I said, you do not go to a Chiefs game for convenience. You don't go to a Chiefs game to necessarily enjoy it. It's kind of annoying. You go to a Chiefs game to say you experienced Arrowhead Stadium, right? You see where I'm taking this now? Let's wrap it into prayer. But here's what I'm saying. You don't go into prayer looking for convenience when you're sinner. You don't go in looking for the easy route. It is painful at times to walk into prayer knowing the weight in your chest of all of the things that you have done and the sin that you're involved in and everything else. But you go into that space. You don't resist it. You step into it. Why? Because it is the only place you're going to experience transformational love. It is the only place you are going to step into that is going to shower you with a love that overwhelms you, that washes away your sins, that promises never to leave you nor forsake you, that takes you from an adulterous, lying, murderous, cover-up narcissist to a person who is honest and faithful before the Lord, only prayer can do that. So if you hear anything today, hear me say this, whether it's Romans chapter 8, whether it's the life of David, whether it's a collection of the Psalms, don't let sin stop you from prayer. Let it send you to prayer on your knees into a place of confession to experience a love that transforms you. That's what sinners find in prayer. That is why God loves me beyond my worst sins. 